Hello and welcome to another episode of EG's Office Politics, the podcast that occupies a prime location at the intersection of real estate and policy. I'm Piers Weiner. And I'm Mark Prisk. And in this episode, house builders have had enough, the government has Fs all over its climate change report card, Gove has entered the matrix, and we talked to North of Tyne Mayor Jamie Driscoll. God, I'm exhausted already. How are you feeling? Um, my Lord Deben. Yes, yes. Well, let's let's start with that, because uh, the, the Climate Change Committee report, which was uh, last week, a bit longer mm-hmm. when this comes out, it's it's the last report of the CCC, isn't it? Or the last report. That, yes, that, right. And it's pretty damning, isn't it? Yes, I mean, I think he's always been clearly, you know, focused on this and has always held ministers feet to the fire, whoever's in government. And obviously there have been just the one or two changes in the last year. <clears throat> um, but uh, I, I mean, I, I get what he's saying. I, my impression is certainly, I mean, obviously, uh, my old Goldsmith resigned from the government making yeah. similar noises, which is the government isn't focused on this. They need to do more. We're falling behind the rest of the world and so on. And that may well be true. I, in defence of Rishi Sunak, I get the impression that, you know, he's trying to juggle some pretty difficult things at the moment. And therefore, just in sheer bandwidth terms, yeah. You know, he's just not getting to this bit in his in-trail. I mean, that, that, that's the generous side to it. I do get the well, impression from some people that as a, as a whole, the government is not as committed on this. They're focused on their five priorities and they're, you know, and heaven knows they're, they're tough enough as they, as they are. So yeah. the environmental side doesn't feel like it's, you know, quite where it might be. Um, but, yeah, quite damning stuff from, from, from the former John Gummer, now Lord Deben. Well, exactly. I mean, that's I've got a few of his his comments from the report uh, in front of me, um, and it, it really focuses on exactly what you've just said. He says there is a worrying hesitancy by ministers to lead the country to the next stage of net zero commitments. And then he says the true test of delivery is leadership. And here I am more worried. It's yes. it's about as, <laughs> as much an attack on, on Rishi Sunak personally, actually, isn't it? I mean, well, I think it's also I think the Treasury, you know, orthodoxy around getting the deficit down, mm. dealing with the balance, you know, the, ter- the difficult financial situation. Um, I think that's really also holding things back um, because I think the departments probably are feeling that, that this, you know, they've got to deal with the immediate stuff that's coming over the net at them. And that sort of middle area, which may not show returns or outcomes for two or three years. But I, I agree. I mean, for example, on you know, the whole issue around EV charges and the shift in the public mood away back towards petrol and diesel because of changing electricity and petrol prices, you know, I think there doesn't feel that same urgency at the moment. So, uh, yeah, um, quite quite a stinging criticism. And we're, we're going to be talking to Lord Deben in the future, aren't we, on a future mm, episode? Indeed, no, so, uh, so watch this space. Actually, I, I don't think you can watch this space with a podcast, can you? Um, listen to this space. That doesn't work. That doesn't work yes, at all. Indeed. Have, a, have a cup of tea and a biscuit and we'll be back with you shortly. <laughs> not now, not now. He said quickly, demonstrating <laughs> inability to uh, recognise the short and the medium term himself. Those, I mean, those five priorities, that's that's a bit of a, a, a tricky one, isn't it? Because obviously the government has, well, the Prime Minister has set those five priorities, those five key areas um and they were meant to be fairly easy targets weren't they i mean not desperately easy but they they weren't meant to be the most impossible things to solve in an 18-month window inflation was meant to come down because of everything else that was happening and yet it's stubbornly remaining high do you feel that that's kind of pushing 
everything else out of the agenda? Are we just running out of room? I think the we saw it during lockdown, which is the governments have a certain amount of lock, you know bandwidth. And and so you can deal with so many things, but you, you the ability to then do the green stuff, do the um, sustainable long term plans, do the programs on, you know, workforce planning for the NHS. All that was was stuff that just had to wait, had to hold. And you see this now to a degree. Um, I mean, it's always been the case anyway. Once number 10 decides what its core priorities are, then the rest of government, even and middle ranking ministers, as I was, um, it's often a struggle then to get the, the area you're trying to work on and you've got ideas for up onto the cabinet table because they're just focused on getting, you know, delivering. And um, and I think that's the challenge for them. And obviously, you know, there's a huge number of uh, people, not just number 10, but pretty much every central bank has failed to judge where inflation was coming from, the speed it was coming, and indeed, you know, how sticky it's proven to be. Mm. Uh, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm ancient, so I can remember the 70s and 80s when inflation, I can remember 27%, but anyway, um, and, you know, which is eye-watering. So, it, but of course, it's it's a different world now, and if you're not used to anything more than 1%, then 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9% all feels terrifying. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think what I would say is that inflation has proved stickier. That is then knocked on in terms of all the other um, targets. And, and we're I currently, it's not, it's not just stickier, is it? It's the fact that, that we're currently the worst in terms of inflation in the G7. We're pretty bad in terms of the 38 OECD rich countries. Yes. You know, it's, no, it's, but it it's bad. It, it swings around about us. Germany's in recession now. Yeah. So we're not. So there's this, you know, there's this kind of thing. I was, it was a bit like um, COVID. People were taking snapshots at certain moments and saying, at this moment, we're the worst. Fine, let's have a look at the picture in the round. Let's look at the ebbs and flows. Uh, so I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that everything's been wonderful. It's not. It, it, it has been very disappointing to see how poor the Bank of England and, frankly, a lot of other financial forecasters uh, including the Treasury, have been uh, judging the nature of this inflationary period, what's driving it and where it's going. And I think that may, that's probably why I suspect the Chancellor is as cautious as he is now, um, you know, about pretty much any other new initiative. And meanwhile, because of that, things are starting to get pushed aside, aren't they? And and as you say, that, that lack of bandwidth, because we've also seen um, just this week, uh, Another fairly daring letter this time from uh, organised by the HBF from about 200 yes. small and middle sized house oh, builders yeah. who have said, I think one of the things they said was the housing policy was catastrophic, that it was driving yeah. businesses out of business, that it was going to limit the number of houses. I mean, that's for the party of home ownership and house building. Mm. That's, mm. again, dreadful, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, I think, you know, the HBF is a very effective lobby group. And I think it's been stung uh, and its members have been stung by criticism, not just from the current government, but actually from Parliament generally about where it is with standards and so on. That's improved. Um, and I think obviously the, the removal of mandatory housing targets, I think the genuine sense from small businesses that the planning system is so treacly, so difficult to work through and the outcome so uncertain that in terms of investment, why would you? you know, uh, uh, yeah. take a chance on a small building plot. 
And so that's what's undermined, I think, the sense. But it, it, it's a very robust, uh, you know, piece of uh, lobbying. And, you know, I think there are I think there are problems. I mean, I think the system does need better resourcing. I think the um, I think the, the, the way in which Natural England is operating now with some of its um, the, you know, the need for having neutral uh, nutrient, nutrient neutrality. Areas. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that one thing that I tried to do, which we which I got number 10 support for, which is making sure that agencies that have a role in the environment or heritage or whatever also have a mind to the broader economic impact of their actions mm. because the danger is if, if you're just charged with you know um the wildlife of the, of the nation then you're going to you're going to basically want to stop anything and everything uh, that undermines your goal and government has to say well hang on we'll balance x with y and I just get the impression with too many of these agencies now, they're back to their habits, which is to say, well, I don't care about anything else. The only thing I care about is this narrow area of, of environmental sustainability. And I'm just going to you know, act on that basis. And they've got to have more balance. They've just got to have more. So that's that's where a cabinet committee should be right on top of this issue. Um, and that goes it takes us back to leadership again, doesn't it? Which requires yeah. yes, the bandwidth, so. but also well, the, the, the intent. I mean, the yeah, nutri you... neutrality thing is really interesting because the, the HBF have, have estimated, I mean, they, they've said that they've seen 145,000 homes that have been held up by this. Um, but Natural England has said they're aware that actually new homes don't really have that much impact. The impact is farming. The impact is existing communities. They're dealing with the bit that they're allowed to deal with, even though they know yeah. that it's, it's kind of tweaking. And it's, I think this goes back to exactly what you said, that that sort of silo mentality, they're dealing with a bit that they're allowed to deal with. Yes. And and so the, the risk is you become a purist. And what we also need is a recognition that actually there are lots of different bits to this jigsaw. There isn't just one piece that if you put it in its place, suddenly everything else will be improved. And you get this silo mentality in agencies um, where they're charged with certain outcomes. It's why, you know, as you say, leadership, sensible goals, balance, breadth, those are qualities you need in good public uh, public service delivery and policy. Uh, meanwhile, we've got Michael Gove writing the introduction to a, a piece by the Policy Exchange, mm. um, the, the placemaking matrix. So Michael Gove has entered it's the, the fourth, matrix. It's the fourth in the series. That's um, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the underwhelming sequel. You won't get Mr. Gove, you'll get Mr. Mr. Smith, if you remember, the wonderful uh, <laughs> Hugo Weaving as, as Mr. Smith. You'll get Mr. Gove instead with the shades. I think it'd be good. Will we all become Michael Gove? Is that what's going to happen? <laughs> Some yes, horrible virus will spread through the Matrix <laughs> and we'll all become Michael Gove. Michael That's... find that particularly worrying. But anyway, <laughs> sorry, that was a facetious flight of fancy. Let's get back to reality. But this is this is exactly the thing, isn't it? Because it's a laudable idea, isn't it? It's it's it's, it's wanting to focus on um, the placemaking elements, the psychological um, impact of of developments. And it, it says that you know, with using this matrix, you'll be able to score whether something should or should not be built because of how it's going to impact communities, how, how it's going to uh, look, how it's going to feel, how it's going to harness um, placemaking, which is great. But is that the sort of thing that we should really be focusing on? Is that the sort of thing that the Secretary of State should really be focusing on when we have a major housing crisis? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think Michael's analysis, I agree with a good part of it, which is that 
one of the reasons why communities fight development is because they some of them are so plug ugly and mm -hmm. so bog standard that and and never come with you know the additional places in this primary school that 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 that, that extra capacity in the public transport system or whatever and so so you get a lot and I saw this as a constituency member of parliament let alone as a housing minister which is that worry amongst the public that somehow uh, this is going to be foisted upon you come what may and it's going to make the the area they live in the place they live in horrific um mm. I think what yeah. I like what I like about it is one um it's putting placemaking at the heart of how we change our uh, communities and that's good um and that's reflected. Homes England, uh, Peter Dent and his colleagues have, have rightly put this so that they're, yes, they're about homes, they're, but it's they're about, they're about making communities and not building units. Yeah. And that I think is important as well. So that thinking is good. Whether the matrix itself works, I mean, it's interesting. I scanned the back of it uh, just because I thought I'd, I'd suddenly realized I missed the summary. And right at the back, it does talk about the what would make up the matrix in terms of what you would be measuring. But it also recognizes that it would probably the best moment at which you would be able to make a reasonable judgment would be once the development is complete. Yes. And so the three examples that it looked at were complete developments. It's far so, easier so to assess. So the question then is, where does it sit in the system? What it, I think could be good for would be regeneration and whether you could link it up with digital models to say, well, this is where it is at the moment. If we were to do these redesigns, these repurposings, uh, what, how would that feed into, tricky to do it on, in terms of the public response to something, but the other elements could be judged and you might be able to see what the repurposing actually would, uh, of this town center, you know, 1970s uh, monstrosity of a shopping center or whatever with a, with a concrete car park and all the rest of it. If we repurpose this, what does that do for the area? So I, I think it's a really interesting idea. I can't see how you could operate it in advance of the thing being developed. And that's the, the question, um, uh, you know, but and also there's obviously the, the practical question. How do you measure subjectivity against objectivity? Um, you know, the design of a space might be loved by me and might be hated by you. Yeah. Um, but we could both agree on, you know, or at least we could quantify the number of affordable homes that should be built. So yes. it's getting that There's, attention. There but is yeah, a certain it, amount it, of subjectivity sneaking into the case studies. I think if anybody wants a good laugh, go and have a go and have a read. Okay. Because the, the case study on Nine Elms is, um, I mean, you might say that it's absolutely fair cop, but it's definitely an opinion. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. And there is a certain, you know, and to be fair, and Nick Boy Smith, who's been very much involved in making things more beautiful, and I think there's a strong argument for that. Uh, and others often cite, you know, Nine Elms. And, yeah. and I think, anyway, and I've walked around it several times, and it, it does have that slightly anonymous, it's not a streetscape you want to walk in. And I've always taken the view that the most successful urban spaces are the ones you actually want to explore uh, on foot. Um, because that means you feel comfortable. This comes to the psychological question. So yeah, it's 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 an interesting one, but I'm not sure it'll make it to the uh, to a movie screen uh, just yet. The placemaking matrix. I think one of the things that stuck out with me with with the placemaking matrix is that it also requires another member of staff, doesn't it, for each local authority, a minimum of of one extra pair of hands to to shepherd this yeah. thing through. I mean, we've already got incredibly cash strapped local authorities yes, yes. another That's crisis in in funding yeah. now that was that was an interesting thing at uh at the local government association conference um 
I mean, Michael Gove was there. He was talking about um, streamlining, leveling up funding. Um, that seems to be a, a firm commitment with these 10 uh, pilot authorities. Um, but the, another thing that he said was about local planning. And it was this. Oh, yeah. um, one more thing. If the planning system is to work, it needs more resource, more expertise and more planners. That is why we are surging additional planning resource to the front line. I have asked the Department and Homes England to look at plans to go even further. I hope to be able to update you all on progress shortly. So, I mean, this is great news, isn't it? That the, An idea of pu pushing far more or surging far more resources into local authority planning departments. But is it going to happen? I mean, we've, do we have time? Do we have the money sloshing around? I mean, is he making commitments that the Treasury are going to have to cash? Well, I think the fact that he's named Homes England would suggest that they've got a, a plan in, 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 in mind already. And to be fair, I think from what I've seen from Homes England recently, they are looking to how can they better resource those areas under greatest pressure? Um, I, I personally think he's right to say they need more resources, but I also think we need fewer local authorities, local planning authorities. Um, you know, I've cited before that Hertfordshire has 10 separate local planning authorities, and they're all vying for specialists, whether it's tree preservation orders or you know, strategic planners or urban planners and so on. So I think actually it would do better to have fewer, larger um, and potentially better paid uh, uh, planning authorities in that sense. But um, yeah, I, I suspect local planning authorities won't be holding their breath. That's a very good point, actually, the idea of, of fewer, bigger. Um, I mean, the direction of travel with the combined authorities, that was another thing that, that Michael Gove said in his speech, was was very much... Um, recommitting to to expanding that um mayors for all um he he name checked the east riding and hull combined authority proposal which has been oh, sort yeah. of kicking around for a while so that's that's good to see that there's some action there and and just pledging more devolution of power i mean we had the chance to to interview uh jamie driscoll the mayor of the north of tyne region um, mm. Yes, and uh, we've we've got that coming up. So if you if you stay tuned, you'll be able to hear the interview with with Jamie Driscoll, and it's quite it's quite interesting because he successfully negotiated a new devolution deal, which is worth four point three billion pounds, or actually is worth ten billion pounds over the the lifetime of it, um, and he's extended the scope of his combined authority. I mean, he's nearly doubled it, um, so it includes mm -hmm. Gateshead and it includes Sunderland, um, and he's a socialist. Um, he was a Corbyn supporter, elected in 2019, but he's seemingly um, respected by the development community, um, by the region's politicians, whether they're from the left or the right or the Conservatives in Northumberland or um, Labour in Newcastle. And he says he he gets on well with people across the party lines, uh, including um, Michael Gove, with whom he had to negotiate this Devo deal. But, and this is the thing that's that's really interesting, is that he's recently been deselected as Labour's candidate to be the mayor in next May's election, despite being the incumbent. And there are lots of sort of rumours about the allegations of, of anti-Semitism or standing on an anti-Semitic platform. I mean, he's dealt with that in other media and said that it's complete nonsense. Yeah. But he was quite interesting talking about where he's come from, what he thinks still, what he's done, what he thinks still needs to be done, mm -hmm. and I think really quite interestingly whether or not he's going to stand as an independent interesting well let's have a listen shall we
Hello and welcome to EG's Office Politics. I'm Piers Weiner, and today I'm joined by a special guest, the Mayor of the North of Tyne Combined Authority, Jamie Driscoll. Jamie, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Piers. Pleasure to be here. How, how do you think your period as Mayor has improved the region? Have you been able to do as much as you wanted to do? Do you think you've been able to make a significant difference um, with sort of wealth generation, regeneration, making those transport changes? Or is it, you know, we're, we're at early stages? Um, I, th- well, I think it's both. Um, so I was elected in May 2019. Theresa right. May was Prime Minister. Some, some of you, your listeners and readers might remember her. Uh, we've been through four Prime Ministers, six Chancellors. Um, I've lost count of local government ministers. No, I was about um, to say, can you do housing uh, ministers? Because I... <laughs> the European war, spiralling inflation. So, it, is, it feels like another age, doesn't it? It feels like... You, yeah. yeah. Uh, and despite, and we obviously, you, you come in and there is no organisation. Almost always when someone's elected, they have an organisation that they inherit. Yeah. And, and we have literally nothing. So to have created, we're over 5,000 jobs created now. Um, there, there's, I mean, I've met people whose lives have been transformed through this. And our population is only 880,000 people. That's a lot. That's a big proportion of people in work today as a result of what we've done. It's brought the unemployment rate down by slightly over a percent. Now, that's a big deal for the North East. Yeah. The thousands of people skilled, uh, the, the work we're doing with schools, with communities, um, the, the crowdfunder, the way of done a citizen assembly on climate change, and started to change the idea of how people engage with politics. And trust in politics is at an all-time low, and I think um, it's something that I'm showing there's a different way to do it. You don't have to bang the party drum. You talk to people, listen to them. You use your own judgment on values. You know, there's often a conflict you have to resolve. Um, but by listening to people, you almost always end up with knowing something that you didn't know at the start. Um, so that's important. Um, and of course, bringing together a new devolution deal yeah. brings the region together with uh, 4.3 billion quid already signed off and it's likely to be 10 billion over the course of the deal. Um, so I think as a track record, um, even if I chose not to stand again, I think I'd be pretty happy with that on my CV. What happens next after a successful term, not only arranging the Devo deal that you've arranged, but also getting the, the expansion of the, of the combined authority, and now to be out in the cold, can we say that? Um, well, what happens next? <laughs> but we, we are in the position where... As a Labour candidate, you're not going to be standing again. Um, they've they've decided that they want somebody else. I mean, uh, can we go into what the reasons are for that, or what you think might be the reasons? Have, have you been told what the reasons are? Um, well, we can speculate what the reasons are. I mean, you, you don't get told what the reasons are. Um, that would be far too sensible, wouldn't it? You're, you're um, one of the you're one of the country's leading Labour politicians. Yeah. That's I mean. You're actually in an executive function. You, you've, you're an elected leader of, a, of an area. Doesn't that give you sort of almost a higher status as people who are in opposition? That's right, yeah. I'm not in opposition, I'm in power. If the Labour Party wants to get into power, every pollster will tell you they have to demonstrate economic competence. Uh, and if someone who's got a 50% increase in value for money, uh, 10 years ahead of his job creation target, uh, for every pound I invest, it returns more than three pound of treasury in the payroll taxes alone. Um, you would think that the Labour Party would say, look, just have a look at what Jamie's doing. We are good in power. However, we also know from, and it's not just the Labour Party, parties do have internal factions. 
Um, the Labour Party is um, it, one of the, this. What sums it up is they put a rule change through. They said that in terms of selections, the rules of natural justice no longer apply. So people can't even make an effective legal challenge when people are arbitrarily removed. And it's been going on for some years now. I mean, as a mayor, according to the Labour rulebook, I'm automatically allowed the access to the data so I'm contact Labour members. And I've been asking for this for years. And it was excuse after excuse. The system doesn't work. We can't do it for mayors. Now, I spoke to me other colleagues of the mayors, and they said, oh, yeah, you can. You do it like this. Went back to them. Oh, um, right, well, there's another reason. And in January this year, got an email. So finally said, look, can you please just send me a spreadsheet and I'll handle it. And I'm, you know, I know what I'm doing with GDPR. There's no problem there. Uh, got a, an email back saying, you can have the data, but only if you promise not to run as mayor. Um, so that's an open and shut case that, that those in control of the party apparatus didn't want to make. And I think you can speculate why, but there's a couple of reasons. One is one of my colleagues told me, says, uh, Jamie, the problem you've got is you are unmanageable. <laughs> I will be an independent mind regardless um, and have been like that throughout my career and sometimes it serves you well usually it serves you well people value it but occasionally people who um, want their own way all the time because they want to present a certain appearance uh, it doesn't work um, and so someone like me works terrifically well with business and big businesses and small businesses is also an advocate of the trade unions and saying look we do need that economic balance unless we have collective bargaining we end up with a mismatch matched unbalanced economy because the flexible labor market becomes an atomized labor market and that's no good for anyone um so yeah when you're trying to present a certain image from the labor party central office they don't like the idea of a mayor turning up on picket lines and talking to workers and saying you know let's actually look after people these are the people who actually generate the wealth uh, you know and i'll represent those people too so it's left us in a position where the labor party said um you cannot stand for this role I've created, <laughs> despite being the incumbent mayor in the region, and the only person in the entire region who's ever done the job of mayor. Um, I think so experience would count for something, wouldn't you? But you would think so on a track record. So where does that leave us? Well, ultimately, um, I mean, I'm obviously trying to explore every avenue of the Labour Party, but um, given that the legal route is very unlikely to work and extremely expensive, it takes a long time. I don't think that's likely to be a solution then. So, you know, I'll have to reflect on it over the summer and see what I'm going to do next. Um, but, you know, if the Labour Party don't want me, it's quite clear that a lot of the people do. I've had messages from actually most of the Labour Party, um, constituency after constituency objected to this, despite threats of disciplinary action, and I'm very popular there. Um, I've had Conservative politicians get in touch and say, look, if you run as an independent, I'll vote for you over a Conservative candidate. Independence in Newcastle put in a resolution to council um, praising my work. Um, Lib Dems and Tories have been on the regional politics show saying, like, I shot himself in the foot. He's the one guy who actually gets the job done and doesn't play daft games. Um, and above all, I think what the public want in their politicians is someone who will put doing the job ahead of playing political games. Um, and, you know, that, that narrative is well and truly established when you've got people like um, Simon Clark and the Deems at Harwi tweeting in my support, despite me being, you know, seen as a, a socialist from the left of the Labour Party, then yeah. um, I'm doing something right. Can, can we have a look at that, um, at the Devo deal itself? Can you give us a, a flavour of, of what difference that makes? Yeah, if we, Manchester never actually stopped working together. It's very geographically compact. Mm. 
as a city. They never stopped working together even after the metropolitan boroughs were abolished in the 1980s. And transport for Greater Manchester has been going, I think, since 2011. And a lot of that was down to Richard Lees' leadership. He just said, look, we've got to pull together. And they did. So by the time Andy walked through the door in 2017, he had 500 staff. And they said to him, tell us who you want to recruit and we'll go and get them. And when I walked through the door, we had three permanent members of staff. I was outnumbered by camera crew. And I said, right, let's get some work done. They said, we haven't got any pens for the whiteboards. <laughs> so it's a different situation. Um, so Manchester, and, and you know, Andy's gone from strength to strength. I think he's a very effective political leader. Um, and I think Andy Street's done a good job in the West Midlands yeah. as well. Um, but there have been others who haven't, um, you know, if... if I don't want to start picking on people. It's not my style. But if you look at Cambridge and Peterborough, the way James um, left it, it wasn't in a good state. Um, so the, what our deal has got is a higher investment fund than everybody else. So where the high, next highest are all on 38 million a year for um, much bigger populations than ours. Hmm. We're on 48 million. We've got a full transport devolution like everybody else now at last. But there's other things in there to do with education and child poverty prevention, because I spoke to the Secretary of State and got that in. Um, I've done a lot of work on fiscal devolution, which I think is the way we've got to go if we're going to have any um, political settlement that is palatable to Treasury, but actually is going to be transformative in a region. We've got to find a way of getting hands on uh, fiscal powers, um, and that's written into it for a regional wealth fund. So, you know, we are actually in some areas advanced of anybody else, particularly our work in schools, we're advanced of the others, and they're asking us how we did it. Um, bearing in mind, we came to the table a couple of years later than everyone else. That's a really interesting point, because you said before, didn't you, that um, the position of the mayor, and in fact, the position of the regions to date has been a bit like Oliver Twist, that you're coming up with a begging bowl and you're politely asking for more in the hopes that somebody will be kind enough to give it to you, instead of having those not just a bigger chunk of money, which this Devo deal gives you, but also the power to, again, not just spend it the way you want to, but raise funds. That's the crucial bit, isn't it? To be able to pull in that funding. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely an Oliver Twist mentality amongst some in regions and then in local governments. Um, this idea that it's everybody's, it's all somebody else's fault and they need to give us more money. I remember having a conversation with a Treasury Minister who said, Jamie, everybody always asks me for money and nobody ever sends me a spreadsheet. Um, which it up nicely. Uh, I wrote a paper on fiscal devolution. It's available um, on the internet. Just Google Jamie Driscoll Regional Wealth Generation. It's there and it's, it's uh, an accessible read, 20 pages, talking about how you do this in detail. Um, but the corresponding free market mentality is the state is crowding us out. Can we have a tax break? And, and some R&D subsidy as well. Um, and by the way, can you pick up our externalities on low pay and carbon emissions? And what it needs is people to actually just say, look, what's a win-win that we can get a settlement on that works out better for everybody? And the only real answer to that on the subject of uh, regional regeneration is wealth generation. You've got to find a way of generating wealth. Uh, and my definition of wealth, where wealth comes from, is getting skilled people to do useful things for other people. And whether that's painting your back bedroom or inventing a cure for COVID um, doesn't really matter in terms of the definition. And for that, you need 
investment, you need skilled people, and you need the social and physical infrastructure to back it up. Because if you can't travel or move your goods, you've got a problem. You know, if people are stuck in traffic jams for an hour a day, that's just their time. Um, and equally, if you've got a lot of people whose mental health is so poor that they're going off on sicker all the time, that's a bad thing. And you've got to get to the bottom of that and work out why. Um, and it's, it's the systems thinking approach, I think, that really makes a difference. And realising that this is not a zero-sum game. That there is genuinely the possibility of a win-win. And if you can't find that, it's never going to work. Because you might win an argument, but they're never going to sign off the cash. Or if they do, when the next party is in power, they'll reverse it. And we end up swinging from pillar to post with nobody achieving anything on a long-term basis. I mean, there, there is an element of pillar to post anyway, isn't there? Because we've had... the. The combined authorities is I'm not even going to try and find a number for which iteration of devolving powers to a regional level it is. But is there a possibility that what, you, what you're building, what's being set up at this level, could actually just be swept away, could, could go the way of the RDAs, could go the way of the proposed regional assemblies, that you, you, know, you end up with, with something that, that isn't lasting? Significant difference is the election of a mayor. You're right, um, Andy Pike at uh, Newcastle did a piece of work and showed 51 interventions over the past 40 years, all aimed at uh, solving the problem of regional wealth generation or regional inequality. But this is the first time you've had a directly elected individual, and that puts it on a different psychological level for the public and a different legal and constitutional level. Yeah. Because no government wants to set the precedent of just abolishing an elected official midway through term. You know, trust me, they really don't want that precedent set. So, whereas a, an RDA can be dismissed at the stroke of a ministerial pen, yeah. because the public really didn't know who they were or, or how to do anything with them, getting rid of your elected mayor is much harder and has severe electoral consequences. So, I would say, although... Combined authorities don't have the powers. I think there's a number of ways that could have been designed better. The fact that you have a, an individual accountable to the public is that change from what's gone before. Um, will we get the money? Will we get the powers? Um, there is always a risk of that, um, just as the risk of you know, central governments can abolish one department. I mean, there's, um, what we, we lost the Department for International Development. It's just gone. Oomph. Um, and Labour promised to bring it back. But now they're saying they're not going to bring it back. And, you know, so it's all over the place. Um, that's the nature of our uh, lack of a constitution in this country. Yeah. So one of the things that I and the other mayors and a, a wide body of, of think tanks agree as well is there needs to be a legal backstop for the entrenchment of devolution. So once given, it requires the people in the region to decide they don't want it, not the centre. Because the centre will always want the powers back for itself yeah. at some point. Yeah. But that's what, what more powers do you think are needed at your level? Because obviously, we said the Devo deal gives you a, a handful more, but I remember at one point it was, um, you know, you'll, you'll have the powers to fine people for smoking on public transport or something like that. It, was, it, it seemed fairly minimal. But now, do you, you've got some more sizable powers. What more do you need? These, I, I tend to look at it not from what powers could I grab, but what is it I want to achieve yeah. that has a barrier in the way that I could get rid of. Um, and again, it comes back to that, that someone might reasonably sign off. Because what I want is a central bank with the ability, my own currency and you know, armed forces to conquer the world. It's never going to happen, is it? So, 
if we're on it as practicalities, one is about land assembly. Yeah. At the moment, there's any number of stall sites, and the northeast is no different from the rest of the country, where you have this mosaic of land ownership. Some people are holding out for the maximum value because they don't care, they're absentees. Uh, others want to go on with it because it might be the local councillor in the mix. At the moment, you've got the power to create a mayoral development corporation. That requires the democratically elected mayor to approve, the democratically local, elected local council to approve. But the CPO powers, I remember when I was elected, someone said, look, if you want to do a compulsory purchase order, start now. Because by the time your term finishes, it might just have gone through. Uh, now, bear in mind that the CPO automatically chooses a fair market value, so there's no problem there. No one's really losing out. Um, then my proposal was, well, six months. If it's not been resolved in that time, it goes straight to the Secretary of State who says yes or no. Then all the people who are holding this money trying to invest, and they're not going to wait for long, they know and they can move on. And we say, right, it's not viable. We'll stop wasting money on this. Or it is um, because the Secretary of State said yes. Go ahead and um, have your new development there. So that's something that would actually make a real difference. Because some of this, you've got little pockets of land held by Network Rail. And their process for deciding stuff is, I don't know what it is, and I've been unable to find out. I mean, I'm sure someone there knows, but it's not easy. Because that's not their main role. And they always think, well, we might need it in case we expand the track at some point in the future. Um, and you say, well, are you? He says, well, we don't know, because it's the future, we don't know. And, oh, and you end up in this bizarre sort of Kafkaesque situation where you're trying to do land assembly deals. Has anyone who's ever worked on these things knows? Um, so that's something that could be just done in the government white paper. Any housing planning bill could just put that through, and it would start to make a difference. Is it transformative? Well, it starts to transform pockets of areas, even if not a whole city region. So it's a step in the right direction. Um, but I think ultimately what we need is to crack this short-term thinking. Some people are obviously incredibly eager about the idea of having mayors, of having um, power put at a more local, regional level. Others see it as a another level of bureaucracy, an unnecessary layer. How, what's your de- sort of defence for the role of mayor? How does it help? How can, how can um, a mayor boost regeneration, address transport, deliver housing? The top and bottom of it is, if you look at a place like the northeast, we are so far from Westminster that you see transport, the Department of Transport of, I don't know how many, 5,000 people, whatever, and then the Department for Local Government and Housing, and then the Department for, for whatever the latest iteration of business is, um, all running their own projects, none of them necessarily talking to each other about how they're going to work together in the northeast. Um, and it's not a new idea. They're aware of that. But what nobody's yet come up with is a way that you fix this in a locality. And it's almost the case that a mayor is a ringmaster for the region. And um, you sometimes hear, is this another level of government? Well, no, it isn't. I mean, uh, if you look at the new northeast area, uh, we've got the new devolution deal coming online. There's 526 councillors in upper tier authorities, 22 MPs, two police and crime commissioners. One extra mayor is not a layer of government. <laughs> it is a person um, who actually gets paid less than an MP, by the way. So, you know, I, I really don't think that that holds water. And the powers are coming down from central government. And that ability to convene locally. So if you look at something like adult education, 
evolved to us in uh, the 1st of August 2020. Prior to devolution, there were 22,000 people a year getting skills training. You know, think chefs, welders, computer operator skills, those sorts of things. Uh, essential to a modern economy. Since devolution, we've increased that to 33,000 a year on the same budget. So the value for money is phenomenal. What branch of government ever gets a 50% increase in value for money? It's that ability, because we can talk to the employers and see what they need. We can get them involved in designing the training programs. We can speak to the, the, the charity sector, the people who are working with people who, to use that, that vague phrase, who are economically inactive and find out exactly why. Um, and some of it's mental health. A lot of it is actually childcare responsibilities, means that people can't go on a traditional training course, either night school or wherever else it might be. So we designed the courses to fit around people's caring responsibilities, around existing work plans. And as a result, we've got a load more people doing them and then going out and earning more money and generating more tax revenue and all of the good things that everybody of every party says wants to happen. But you can only do it by that careful tying together at the local level. Um, and I sometimes use a golf analogy. Um, you know, even if people don't play golf, know that from the tee, if you're trying to get a hole in one, it's not going to work. Someone put it on the tee and then someone else, you change your club and use a putter to get in the hole. And it's that the, the mayor's job is to do the putting, not the driving. Do you think that that kind of pooling, that um, ability, some of your, your fellow mayors have described as almost being in charge of your own government department, is that transformative or is it just a step in the process? That's a good question. Yeah, you are, in effect, minister for a region. Is it transformative? Well, we're taking baby steps in devolution in England, I think it's fair to say at this mm -hmm. stage. If you look at the amount of uh, uncontrolled budget that I have, it's 20 million a year that which isn't ring-fast for something else. Now, that's tiny. And for us to have created over 5,000 jobs with it, more than double the number of enrolments, a child poverty prevention program, a climate emergency program, work with schools, everything we're doing from it is astonishing value for money. Um, and I think that's partly my mindset, coming from a private sector background, of trying to lever in as much extra money as we can. Mm. Um, and we've even set up a venture capital fund because access to finance in a northeast is an issue for a lot of businesses. You can get it, but at exorbitant rates compared to London. Um, so that ability to bring in affordable finance and social finance would be about as well. But is that transformative? Well, it will be if and when we get the scale and the firepower that we need. So that was why as soon as I came in, it was even in my, my I was elected in May 2019, and in my manifesto for that, I said that we need to bring the region together. And for the benefit of your readers and listeners, the north of Tyne is the city of Newcastle-upon-Tyne, and north Tyne side, Wallsend, Whitley Bay, places like that, all the way up to Scotland and Berwick. Um, so it's a big area geographically, but it doesn't include Gateshead and Sunderland and the rest of the Tyne and Weir conurbation, which means we couldn't have transport. Yeah. And how on earth you can do regeneration without transport, how you can do uh, a proper housing strategy when you have no control over transport, well, it's simply not possible because if you can't move people and goods around, you can't operate just about anything in a modern economy. So um, there had been a long history of Balkan-style disagreements between people locally, uh, even in the same party. This wasn't party political particularly. Uh, and it took me a while and um, quite a few cups of coffee and pints of beer with people to get them to the table. 
but it was persuading government to give us the transport money in a big way allowed me to get people to say, all right, look, there might be something in this for us. Whatever our ideological objections to having uh, a mayor, and particularly, actually, it's about status. Yeah. If you have a mayor and you're a council leader who's just elected in the council, you suddenly think that there's someone above you in terms of speaking for things. There isn't really. Um, you know, you, you might get the go on questions. I'm running questions, but council leaders are never going to get that. That's, you know, and I think a mistake because local government is, is not taken seriously enough in this country. Uh, compared to say our near neighbours on the continent, but do you so, think so, do you see that as um as as the the key then? Because I know that that transport has been the, the the sort of the core of what you've been talking about, the core thing that you've been wanting to address. Conversely, uh, Ben Houchen in your neighbouring authority has been fixating on on regeneration. That it's the sites. Do you see that that actually to get the transport sorted out will enable you to unlock that? I think there's different geographies. Um, I mean, I grew up on Teesside, I know it well. My dad actually worked at ICI, and my granddad and brothers, my mum at one point, it's where she met my dad. Um, and that's the site that is just a wasteland, because yeah. there were, I think, 55,000 people working on that site at one point. Um, and the, the nature, changing the nature of the industry caused that to, to all but disappear. And so there is a vast swathe of unused industrial land on Teesside, so regeneration would be the priority there. That's not the case on Tyneside. Um, or Wearside, or even southeast Northumberland. It's very different. I have a vast rural area um, with some of the darkest skies in Europe and, and agriculture. So I think one of, well, actually it was my conservative colleagues, because we're a cross-party combined authority, he, he phrased it to me, he says, well, Ben's focused on building the pyramids, um, this, this fantastic project that you can see from space, but as yet, it isn't built. And he says, you fo- focused on fixing the sewers. Um, you know, affecting people's day-to-day issues, and as a result, actually, have thousands of people in work. So, you know, the, the regeneration, the economic regen we've done has been bringing in big tech companies. Last year, we were the number one region in the country for inward investment job creation. Yeah. We beat London. London. I mean, that takes something. Um, but also working really closely with the SMEs uh, to uh, everything from like small micro businesses with two or three people helping them get a little bit of investment into to increase their employment count by one or two. But it makes a difference when you add these together. And the transport is a key part of that because the Tynawea metro system was designed as part of an integrated transport system. When it was the buses were deregulated, it no longer is. And the idea was that, that people would get a bus into an interchange location on the outskirts of town and get the metro into town or wherever else they're going. Um, I want to get back to that. In those days, the metro ridership was twice what it is today. So we can, we just know we can double public transport usage, which gets cars off the roads, which means vehicles that are carrying goods can move more quickly. Um, there's an economic win in that for everyone, and obviously the, the benefits of, of lower greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and not least, you know what? We spend less time sitting in cars fuming with cortisol going up in our bloodstreams. Yeah, it's healthier for everyone as well. Uh, now, now, is that the real reason why you got rid of yours? Because I remember you um, you sold your car, didn't you? Is that right? Or... I did. Yeah. yeah. Was, it, was um, it the cortisol or was it the environment? What was the uh, what was the main attraction? Um, it was a mixture of environment. It was a mixture of my wife telling me to lose weight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I'm probably doing her a disservice there. Uh, so it had been sitting on the drive during lockdown. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking, you know, why 
do, do I keep a car? Um, I'm in a fortunate position where I can be on my bike and in my office, actually probably at peak times faster than in a car. Um, so I got myself a nice electric bike. And you know what, when you turn up as the mayor to a factory along the tines somewhere, the factory gates, um, on a bike in your suit and tie, and the guy at the barrier is thinking, but I, I was expecting the mayor, but he's on a bike, what's happened here then? Um, it, it just raises an eyebrow. <laughs> Do you think as well as, well as that, because I mean, that is a, a, a brilliant image, but... There is another thing that, as you say, a mayor can do that a local authority leader can't do, is that visibility. If you say, actually, I don't need this, I can, I can turn up to meetings on a bike, I can, I can do this. That, in a sense, is, it's a sort of visible leadership, isn't it? You're kind of able to, to use your visibility in that way. It is. The soft power of mayors yeah. is a big part of it. Uh, if I was... Uh, I was briefly a backbench councillor. I could have rang someone up with exactly the same idea and they wouldn't have taken the meeting. And now, if there's a, a building being closed in Newcastle where there's 31 charities in it, so I write a letter to the new owners saying, can you find a way to find these people new homes? They listen and they take the meeting. Yeah. Um, the, the bus companies, we don't have any control over the bus companies at this stage. That doesn't happen for a couple of years yet. I write them a letter saying there's a load of volunteers who want to talk to you about having subsidised travel for their charity work. They turn up. So it's that ability which you have as a mayor, which, and some mayors are good at using it, and some mayors um, are getting to grips with it. So the, what the downside of the mayor is exactly the same as the downside of any presidential system, in, a, in, in effect. If you get a bad one, you're kind of stuck with it. Um, but, you know, given that we don't have a presidential system in Parliament, regardless of which party you support, I think everybody says it's been a mess for, for a long time now. Yeah. You know, they, they, they just got to look away. The Tories are arguing with each other about Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak or Boris Johnson. Um, I don't think necessarily the, um, the collegiate approach works any better. No, although it's interesting, isn't it, that the position that you're in, you have more exposure to sort of cross-party um, conversations to uh, you, you're constantly on platforms with your fellow mayors, which are a mix of, of Labour, Conservative. You um, you're having to talk to government departments, which obviously are Conservative. You know that that kind of cross party way of of having to deal with things. Do you find that that's is that successful? Is that working, or is that actually a source of tension? It's down to the individual mayor. I really think it is. Mm. Uh, uh, just the same as it's down the individual ministers. There's some ministers whose politics I, I would not agree with our ideologies that I've got on terrifically well with and got things delivered. Uh, um, most famously, uh, Michael Gove, to get this devolution deal. We've got the strongest devolution deal in the entire country by really quite a margin as a result of me negotiating, not just with Mike, but with a whole series of ministers along the way. Grant Shapps and Dean Zahawi, you know, big names, big beasts in the Tory party who you would think, would not get along well with a, a Labour mayor. But we did, because I always look for the win-win. And if you do that, you succeed. If you go in shouting at people, blaming them for all the ills of society, back to the third and fourth generation, like some sort of biblical curse, then you're not going to get anywhere. Um, and what was remarkable was that um, the Conservative leader, of Northumberland and the Lib Dem leader of Durham, both praised me publicly for the role I played 
in bringing the deal together, uh, which was really nice. And it shows that you've built the trust. And if, if you've got to, everybody says that they're there to represent their people. Um, but the reality is you've got to walk a line between are you going to pursue your career in a party or are you going to hold true to representing your people? Obviously, one of the, the speculations about why you weren't asked to run uh, as a Labour candidate was um, that you come from the wrong side of the party now. Mm. That when you when you came in, not only were you uh, a supporter of Jeremy Corbyn, but you were also quite a, a proud supporter of some of the policies. And also, I think you, you'd said that... Um, that you were going to apply socialist um, values and socialist politics in practice. Is that a fair assessment of, of where you were in 2019 coming into the job? Um, yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, I mean, my definition of socialism is that Britain should be running the interests of the people who do the work. Um, and you phrase it like that, and a lot of people think, well, actually, that sounds quite reasonable. Um, because as ever in all political ideologies, there's an awful lot of blood threat and very little truth told. Um, and if you look at the record I've done, is we have created loads more jobs than we should have done by now. But they're all good jobs backed by a good work pledge. And so when I talk to an employer and say, look, you, I would like you to come here, I would like you to establish your business and grow, but I'm going to insist that you look after your workers. Actually, a lot of employers say, well, yeah, we, of course we're going to do that because um, we want skilled, motivated, happy workers who aren't going off on the sick all the time. I said, good, that's the common sense. We've agreed with it. I mean, today uh, and yesterday, we've just heard about Thames Water. Yeah. 14 billion in debt, um, 60 billion um, taken out in, in dividends over the past 40 years since it was privatised. Not a single reservoir bill pumping tons and tons of raw sewage into the water our kids play in. Um, now, it doesn't require a great ideology to say that's wrong. So what is the alternative? Now, there are some things the market does terrifically well. You know, corner shops, no one could ever plan where corner shops should go better than are people actually going to use them if these things are built. But things like a water supply where we all get cholera if it's wrong, that absolutely needs to be planned because it's spatial. It requires digging up the roads. It requires huge land takes for reservoirs. So, um, yes, you can have it private ship and run, but I'll give you an example of uh, our electrical infrastructure here in the northeast. Northern Power Grid turns over 355 million a year. It takes out 125 million a year in profit and is privately owned by an American billionaire. When we had Storm Arwen 18 months ago, it fell over and there were villages in Northumberland that got no electricity for two weeks. Kids couldn't study. Elderly people couldn't get up and down on a stair list. Now, you know, it, it's, and transformation to a green economy won't work unless we have a far stronger electricity grid. You can't do that and be taking money out and put shareholders' values first. And this is all about quarterly results, putting quarterly results ahead of long-term stability. So I'm all for profits and surpluses because that's the only way you can train anyone or invest in anything new. But it's in whose interests are they? And you have to put the national interest and the collective interest first ahead of private interest. Because the truth is, a large number of our utilities and transport system are publicly owned, they're just not publicly owned by this country. So how is that any good for the people of Britain? There are those in the party who, are, who don't like mayors um, in the central. And, and if you look at some of the, the stuff around Andy Burnham, and yeah. I Andy Hart, um, you know, he's, I have to say, 
publicly that he's being briefed again and against and undermined. Um, there's a, a long history of people trying to, to, to undermine me from certain parts of the party. Um, I mean, I've been mayor for four years. Every time there's a front bencher or Keir Starmer come to the region, never once has the regional office informed me and asked me to, to participate in that visit. Um, so, you know, that tells you I was never particularly welcome from them. But, you know, that's, that's the nature of politics, you know, that when you get into it. Well, an incoming Labour government's going to face a different set of challenges than if the Conservatives are re-elected. Let, let's entertain both those hypotheses. For the Conservatives to stay in power, they need their base to stay with them. They were primarily people who were retired and on pension incomes. Frequently fixed incomes. Um, whereas Labour's base is teachers, railway workers, um, uh, a lot of people are in poor pay, um, and the Tories can ignore those things and not lose votes. Labour can't. So an incoming Labour government absolutely needs to deliver for the working people. Let's, let's put it in those terms. And how are they going to do that from a centralised area? Well, it's very, very difficult. Um, where, uh, the ex-Secretary of State was talking to me recently. And he was saying, yeah, they're going to find it difficult because you come into power and you get all excited because you've got your hands on all these levers. And you're pulling them. Then about two years in, you realise the levers aren't connected to anything. <laughs> and uh, if they want to create jobs, if they want to develop a green energy system, if they want a transport system that works, they're going to have to work with the people in that area. And someone with a track record who can demonstrate innovative thinking, who can lever in private sector money. I mean, I'm in conversations with pension funds. About to get two billion quid levered into our region. Some in transport, some in housing, some in venture capital fund that we've set up. Um, so that's the sort of thing that show people the money and they're interested. And, um, you know, they know that they'll be judged not on the basis of private conversations between ministers and mayors, but that the public actually feel happier and wealthier. That element of frustration of the levers being attached to nothing. Have we moved beyond that for mayors? You've got actual power with these new Devo deals, with what you've, with the infrastructure that you put into place. Are you getting to a point where actually the levers are attached to something? Yeah, uh, uh, an ex-diplomat told me, said, um, Jamie, no one's ever going to give you power. You just have to take it. Um, and that's true. So that's why we set up a venture capital fund. Yeah. In order that the money comes back to us from the end of it and creating jobs in a sustainable way. Our Green New Deal Fund, which is putting solar panels on factory roofs, is making capital available for companies who need to use their own capital for their core functions. Um, but then they're paying us back out of the energy savings so that we can continue to do this without ultimately costing the taxpayers any money. The, the mayoral powers and budgets are just start. But what you've got to do is you've got to see your region as a complicated system and try and make it as wealth-generating, as self-funding as possible. If you do that, you don't need central government. What do, you, what do you find is the most frustrating part of the role, obviously, other than being not the candidate next time round? That must be incredibly frustrating. Um, I don't know about frustrating. I mean, you need a, a tremendous amount of patience because you're often lining up uh, an awful lot of people whose, at the very least, consent you need, if not active participation, to get things done. And the frustrating part of that is that governance in Britain is so fragmented and a lot of people are in charge of something but really don't believe they are in charge of it. But everyone still thinks they need central government's permission. 
But then central government will say, we've got these powers and these budgets, get on with it. And it's because usually what needs doing is something that goes beyond someone's remit. And that's that point about no one's going to give you power, just take it. Just go and talk to them and work out, can we do this? And just imagine you're a private corporation that just happens to be in the public domain with a personal mandate. And if you think like that, that tells you what is possible and what isn't possible. Is, you know, can you get a skilled people to do this work and, and not break any laws? Well, let's get on with it if it's a good thing for the public. As opposed to, oh, someone's looking over my shoulder, do I need their goodwill? Um, you need their approval. You don't necessarily need them to sing at your wedding. So do you think, what, what's, the, what's the likelihood of us seeing you May, May next year on the ticket? Um, I honestly don't know at this stage. And I think that's something I would ask, as I always do, is this take soundings from the people. Hmm. It's never been about me. I mean, even for the, the role I hold now is not the time now. I met for half of the region, if you like. Yeah. Um, I, I never sought that position myself. I encouraged a lot of other people to run. I spoke to nine different women council, Labour councillors. Um, sorry, eight and one MEP. Um, and one of the councillors is now an MP. And said, look, run. And I'll run your campaign because um, I'm good at organising. You'll win, don't worry. Um, and the old wasn't right for them at the time or they didn't fancy the job. And, um, the, start of the phone went one Sunday morning uh, and said, look, we've got together and you've got to stop asking other people to do it, Jamie, and run yourself. Uh, but I said, well, I'm going to have to talk to my wife about this, you know. <laughs> um, so uh, even then it was a, I'll only do it if other people are asking me to do it. So I think uh, I'll, I might put it to the people in some way. We'll see what happens. It's a big step. Um, and you know, running a campaign as independent is very expensive as well. So we'll see what happens. Um, if we yeah. if we look into a, a crystal ball, then let's say uh, let's say you do run as an independent. Let's say that you, um, you you find the way to finance it and fund it, and you run and you win. Will it be absurdly more difficult for you to work with a Labour government than it has been for you to work with a Conservative government? That's interesting. I, in my uh, 2019 election campaign, I was doing a big hustings organised by the Chamber of Commerce, the CBI and others. Um, and the host says, oh, but Jamie, you know, you're a socialist. Are you going to find it hard to work with the Conservatives in Northumberland compared to, um, you know, a more centrist candidate? And when you've got the Conservative leader of Northumberland publicly praising me for being, quote, uh, an excellent, honest broker, um, then... These things, they melt away the second when people are confronted with reality and the need to get something done. Because if I've managed to get the strongest devolution deal in the country out of a Conservative government, it'll be a piece of cake getting out of a Labour government, even if I'm not a Labour Party member anymore. <laughs> so I'm really not worried about that. Um, and parties um, change. They go through swings and roundabouts. Uh, individuals want to get stuff done. And ultimately, it comes down to the numbers and the business case. If you can show someone there's a win-win, they'll back it. Jamie Driscoll, thank you so much for coming on the, on the show, and, and good luck. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Fascinating stuff. Really yeah. interesting to talk to him. I mean, it, it is interesting, isn't it, that, that you can be the incumbent and yet not be selected. I mean, that, that's sort of the, the dark arts of politics, I'm sure you've... Uh, that's the thing where, oh, absolutely, you see it where people, they're doing a, a strong job, but the selectorate, not the electorate, yeah. you may take a narrower view. Um, and 
I think that that's one thing there needs to be greater transparency with these mayoral candidates because with parliamentary constituencies it's, it's a little bit clearer but with these the composition of who the selectorate is within the local parties is not quite so clear and I think a bit of transparency might be might be good but um, well well it's interesting to see whether he does finally decide to run as an independent. Well that's all we've got time for we will be back very shortly as uh, as mark said we've got some some really exciting guests coming up so hopefully you'll stay tuned for that yeah. and until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from him bye bye